0: Local independent restaurants are a vital part of the Portland community and could really use a hand up. Tell your local representative to support the Restaurants Act. Learn more and get started at saverestaurants.com. This episode of Right at the Fork is brought to you by Zupan's Markets.
1: And at Zupan's right now, you'll find an excellent deal on their fantastic tamales, five for $10. You can get green chili chicken, red chili pork, or even vegan blue corn and veggie tamales. They're really good. I've had them there before. And if you're at a loss, of course, they're... Uh, you can go check out the the case of ready-to-eat foods at Zoopans, or even those that you have to prepare a little yourself.
0: Oh, they make it so easy for you. Here's something to put on your radar or that needs to be on your radar. Their one-day seafood sale, which takes place this Saturday, Chris, December 5th. Uh, it features uh, sales on caviar, Columbia River king salmon, lobster tails, king crab legs oysters shrimp and much much more it's only happening again this saturday december 5th you don't want to miss out on this
1: no you don't want to miss out and while you're in the store or even if you're not in the store it's worth going to zoo Pans just to come up with christmas gift ideas they have so many nice things uh on display there from uh oh they have some of the best soaps that you can imagine oh yeah and candles and even beyond that to just some really things you wouldn't even think of oh they're, they're all great i've so done
0: I, i've done so much of my stocking stuffer shopping at Zupans. like just w- when my daughters were younger they had they have great little stuffed animals that i could put in there uh, little trinkets uh things to make your holiday table look even more gorgeous they've got all of those things
1: uh, even books yeah, and even cards. If you need Christmas cards, they have them there too. So, and beyond that, of course, there's their f- uh, floral department, which is sec- their second to none in Portland, and uh, and you can view any of that either at West Burnside, uh, Macadam, or Lake Oswego. And there's one more spot you can get even get a better idea.
0: Oh, that's right. It's uh, Zoopians.com. All right, it's time once again, Portland's food scene podcast. It's right at the fork with your host Chris Angeles from Portland Food Adventures.
1: I wanted a little pause there so that you would you would wonder whether I was really here. Sure, but <laughs> no, Court. Thanks so much. Uh, you are are you in the studio today or working out of your home?
0: I'm in the studio today. I had to had to swing in, do a couple of things, and thought, hey, let's uh, let's chat with Chris while I'm here.
1: Oh, that's nice. You <laughs> know. In the beginning, I really, really missed the studio, and I still do. But now I'm really, I'm getting used to recording from home, and I, got, I upgraded the equipment a little bit. Yeah. Today. So, so you,
0: you sound and look great, Chris. <laughs>
1: well, thank, oh, I forgot you could see me. I, I, I no longer have that screen, the Zoom screen up. Yep. Um, but I appreciate it, and you're you're very uh, you're very kind because I really don't look that great. <laughs> I'm very, <laughs> I don't feel like I, I, I even put my fingers through my hair today yet. So, um, but at any rate, um, I am excited for our um, our interview today. Um, it's the second one that we have had with Corey Schreiber. That's right. Who, anybody who's really paying attention or has paid attention over the years in Portland and uh, follows the restaurant world or the chef world would know uh, at least Corey Schreiber's name, but his um, his Portland fame comes from the fact that he was one of the uh, drivers of our food scene way back when, when he started Wildwood and was the chef there as well. So Wildwood was the springboard for so many of our incredible um, talents in Portland, who are now as I, as we ta- as I talk about it with Corey, those are some of the folks that are. Uh, you know, three generations up, and now that we're going to be post-pandemic, at some point, we hope we're, some new talent will emerge from, uh, from folks who probably don't even know about Wildwood, I would imagine. Um, and secondarily, I don't think it's secondarily because it's the present, but what what many people may not know, unless I listen to our previous interview with Corey, which I believe court do you know which episode number that was i
0: do it was number 196
1: oh i was gonna say 169 so thank you one 196 which was where he talked a little bit more about the past and his experiences in portland and some of the people that he uh launched and crossed paths with but he also talked about his current role with cisco systems which is you know the first time i heard that i thought well this is Slightly ironic at least, and anybody would admit to that, but what he's doing now is consulting with restaurants to maximize their potential um, of course, you know his uh his real goal is to forward Cisco System's interests in the Portland market, but in doing so i I have to believe that Cisco was looking for uh Corey's credibility to um to be able to talk to chefs on their level. And he's, you know, you can hear in this interview, he really cares about what's going on and is paying attention to trends and so forth. And we talk about little things like packaging, which of course Cisco would would have uh, uh, their hands in uh, for restaurants and also just profitability and how this is all going to work coming out of the pandemic. It's not as though restaurants had it easy going into the pandemic, and now some of the cracks have been exposed. And, uh, well, Corey's hopeful that some great things will come out of it, but it's unlikely that we're going to see the number of restaurants serving food in a way in which we became accustomed for so long. So um, it's still going to be there. It's just not going to be there on the scale right. that we've seen before. So, um, you know, lately we've heard about Headwaters uh, and Rosa Rosa, Vitali's restaurants closing on top of Imperial. But Paley's Place is still open, which is the original concept. And now they're doing things, a little, will be doing things a little differently. I've been watching quite a few um, cooking demonstrations on Instagram and uh, those have been fun and some from out of town as well because they just happen upon my Instagram but chefs are making money that way too so they have to find new revenue streams and different and pay attention to their profitability in ways that they never have before and that's one thing that Corey is helping them with and on our show notes uh, at Right at the Fork and I believe it would show up on Stitcher and Apple Podcasts in the show notes. Mm-hmm. Uh, Corey offered us, um, well, we normally don't do this, but he said, here's how to get in touch with me, and his um, his contact information is there.
0: Yeah, he made it super easy. You, yeah, you'll find this in the show notes or wherever you're reading or hearing us, and just poke around a little bit. You'll find Corey's email right there.
1: Yeah, he's a really nice guy, and I generally have always enjoyed most of the interviews from the the folks who were operating in the portland food scene as far back as the 90s and he was and um he actually contacted me a couple of weeks ago and said i'm coming out to the coast you want to hang out a little bit so we had the opportunity to chat and hang uh a few days before this interview which took place on november 30th um and we'll run uh we'll run starting the third i believe that's right we'll release it Tomorrow, we're recording this the day before. Yeah. So um, at any rate, uh, don't forget to support your your favorite restaurants with takeout and visit um, our, well, we, we, had a, we have a note right up front in the podcast that you already heard on how to help and lobby on behalf of your small local restaurants to help them get the governmental help that they need. Do that. Um, and what else, Court? Am I missing anything?
0: No, I think you, you covered it all.
1: Well, most all. Yeah, nearly all. I'll always go to Portland Food Adventures and see what trips we have in store. There we go. There's that. And then support our supporters, which would be Zupans and Ringside. They've been very kind to uh, be with us for as many years as they have, and we really appreciate that. I don't mm. say that enough. right? But um, But we really appreciate their support. Otherwise... Uh, I don't know whether this podcast would be coming forth and we'd be able to showcase all the wonderful people that we do. Mm -hmm. So there's that. So, and they enable you and me to have a, would we have a relationship if this podcast, I I would like,
0: I would like to think that we would Chris, but uh, you never know. You never know.
1: Well, I think we would nah, We'd remain in contact, but true. we certainly I don't think would be in touch once a week or as often as we are. That's right. But but, but we could make a point of doing that. You sure. Know, there's, we, no, there's no lack of love.
0: We sh- we should do better.
1: Yes. Yeah. We should well, we haven't gotten together in a long time and yeah. no one can get together right now. So, right. uh but let's do it as soon as we can. And we hope that's sooner rather than later.
2: Right at the Fork is supported by Zupan's Markets. Whether you're an expert chef or a connoisseur of great cuisine, Zupan's Markets has been the number one destination for the food and wine lovers of Portland and beyond for over 40 years. West Burnside, McAdam and Lake Oswego or Zupan's.com. Ringside Steakhouse. It's time again to slice into the best steaks and service available in Portland. Seating is now available by reservation only for indoor and outdoor dining at ringsidesteakhouse.com. And check out the newly opened New England style fish and ship spot with a Northwest personality, Rock Paper Fish. A partnership between the Peterson family and Portland icon Micah Camden in the old boxer ramen space on East Burnside for takeout only. And by Portland Food Adventures. Cabin Fever? Book a fantastic culinary vacation in 2021 with podcast host Chris Angelus. Experience the best of Basque Country with Javier Cantares of Urdaneta or Western Sicily with Taste of Italy's Austria Enzyme. Wet your appetite and get more information at portlandfoodadventures.com or contact Red right at the Fork host Chris Angelus for more details.
1: How are you? I'm good. I'm glad I know. I happen to see you logged in. So I do you find this all pretty strange?
3: You know, I'm I'm adapting. I, I was just talking to somebody. I, I'm getting better in larger meetings to kind of speak my mind a little bit. It's taken me a while to, you know, find my footing in terms of how what's the etiquette. How do I, you know, how do I not just sit there and become a... You know, clapping along with the audience, agreeing with everything, and really kind of find points to, you know, break it down a little bit. <laughs> and so I, you know, I no, I'm 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 thinking that it's kind of an art that we have to learn, and it's not going to go away.
1: Yeah, no, that's true. I'm just that um, I guess it's easy. I mean, it saves gas and uh, to get to places and. uh I don't. I'm just. I haven't. I haven't had the occasion to be in with a lot of people. It's always one on one for me.
3: Right. I was going to say, and you're somebody who seems to be pretty comfortable with yourself, so you're fine to kind of have this monologue slash
1: dialogue. Where'd you get Um, that impression that I'm comfortable with myself?
3: Well, you wouldn't be doing this if you weren't. I don't
1: think. I I guess no, but I have some insecurity. You know, I I used to listen to the podcast when I first started it, and it was very hard for me to do, but now. Now I can handle it. So, um, but now I'm bringing you kind of into my home. I like the studio, but this this is my studio now. How do I sound? By the way, this is a new webcam that I have. You
3: you sound like you sound when you do the podcast, and I listen to it.
1: Okay, good. So well, I'm very glad okay. you. I'm glad you listened to it. It was um, flattering to me when you first wrote and said you were. A listener because as I said last time you were on we hadn't yet met and I'd always heard about you and you were this mysterious guy who you know ran and was the chef at Wildwood for years and I heard about you so many times and then I didn't know where you were and out of the blue comes this email from Corey Schreiber.
3: Well I think that you're you know I think the show does a great job of kind of telling the inside stories and getting into the minds of the people in the food industry, but I also think I look at it as an industry show too. And that's when, when you and I were talking the other day, I thought, you know, is there a little room to just kind of talk about the industry and what has happened and what's going on, what it might look like when we roll into the fabulous year of 2021. Or even 2022 and
1: beyond. (laughs) Let's hope that exists. Let's hope that exists. I (laughs) Um, agree. But yeah, so, and you have an interesting perspective because uh, obviously having um, run a restaurant that, uh, restaurant that not, no restaurant looks like the one that you ran any longer and it, and it won't. So uh, having done that, but now working with Cisco and consulting with restaurants, you have a pretty good, I would, I would think that your um, outlook and, you know, your impressions of the industry right now are some that we would all want to hear about. And um, those folks that, um, that you contact um, probably want to hear what you have to say and what Cisco's got coming down the pipe as well.
3: Well, and, and, I, and as you mentioned, Chris, and it's very true, my heart is always with the operators. I, I think that that is written so hardwired into my DNA that I can't get away with it. And actually, you know, last week when we had the orders again, I just kind of thought I was going to be sobbing in the corner because I just feel for, uh, you know, the team here in the Northwest so much. Uh, but, yeah, my role with Cisco is now a uh, culinary specialist, and we have a team of three here in Portland with two chefs and one uh protein specialist and we really are in the field talking to our customers and customers to be and just really keeping a a hand on the pulse of this kind of incredible time and what it means to them and more importantly how can we help lead us back into a kind of a fruitful plane if you will (laughs) feel like we're in the weeds, we're in the forest now. Mm -hmm. Uh, How do we get get out? So yeah, we do that. And I miss, you know, I'm not in the kitchen as much. I really miss dialogue with customers and cooking and recipe testing and product testing and talking about new menu items, writing new menus. We're not doing as much as that. So this is more of a, uh, you know, kind of a, uh, in the field, if you will, kind of uh, talking to to operators. So that's why I thought it was interesting because I am actually more than I was a year ago out, you know, looking at people in their restaurants and having them, you know, it's, we're a little bit of deer in the headlight, you know, because we don't know where this is going to go. But, uh, yeah, it gives me, gives me a perspective. There's no doubt about it.
1: Well, what do you think? Um, so we're now on a second shutdown. So now, <laughs> at least there has been some experience <laughs> with what to do when you can't serve people in your rest, inside the restaurant, when the majority of your business is takeout. I'm sure there's, well, we know there's definitely some menu paring down when that happens um so do you think that uh while some restaurants have closed those that have stayed open are starting to figure out ways to to either stay afloat or as when they open up again maybe start to be to make a profit what 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 mode are they in right now
3: most restaurants It's a great question. And I actually brought it up in a team meeting today, too. And I put it into three categories. I mean, there's the there's three layers, possibly four, where the people that adapted eight months ago and said, okay, we're going to go, we're going to pivot, we're going to do to-go foods, uh, we're going to figure out how to do a little bit of retail, we're going to think about how to do cold packs and get them into packages to go. And then there are, are the people that we kind of refer to as the duck and cover. Let's let's pretend this isn't happening and uh, let's take cover and kind of wait it out. And hopefully there's some finance to support that as they go, uh, whether it's coming from the state level or the, the federal level. Uh, and they're kind of a wait and see. So we'll kind of do a little bit and we'll watch our you know revenues will start to plummet and we're going to have problems paying the rent and keeping our employees. And then there's the third tier where everybody doesn't want to do anything, and they kind of get into this frozen pattern, which I think a lot of the smaller, you know, we sometimes call the mom and pop restaurants and so on, too, are the ones that are having the hardest, uh, hardest time. And then then there's the inspiration, which is the people that have opened after the pandemic. And those are the ones that I think are really kind of leading the way. But, uh, you know, most people agreed, but there are different, We like human beings, we have different responses to different emergencies, and that's what I've seen, you know, I was I was thinking the other day, and you let me know if you think there's any sanity in this, but food carts in a way were kind of the foreshadowing indicator of these, the sign of how consumers were looking at food, meaning that they were shrunken model. They dealt with the real estate issue because they just shrunk it down and paid these kind of baseline fees. They dealt with the inventory issue by shrinking the inventory down. They only, they specialized in three to five items. They minimized the labor because you can only put two or three people on a food cart. And I thought that was, that's an interesting way to look back that that was a model that kind of is pulling out the key factors of survival right now. I'm not just saying food carts. I mean, you can do this in a brick and mortar situation, obviously, but those are the accordion issues that got squeezed back down again.
1: Am I correct? In the the brick and mortar (laughs) situation, one of the key factors that has been in, at least in place a little bit, that is, we don't know where that's going is, you know, um, staffing. And a restaurant that has 10, 15, 20 employees that has the ability to furlough them and they can still get paid and survive, that's one thing. But when this all ends in the next month or so, because we don't know where, you know, we don't know politically what's going to happen, but that makes it even tougher because I think a lot of operators felt like, well, we can pare it down and we can keep some people um. You know, they can stay above water by collecting unemployment, but when that goes away, the responsibility and the love is going to fall back to employers, and they're not going to have the revenue to support that. So as far as I can see, it's going to become more difficult depending on what happens, and uh, and it's also very hard to plan when, you know, all we know right now is December 26th that runs out for a lot of people. Um, we're hoping that changes, but
3: well, and you you and I both, Chris, have, have talked to our comrades in the industry, and we've had some people kind of departed. You know, my conversations with Dave Machado, uh, my dear friend Vitaly Paley, and what had to kind of be disassembled, at least downtown, but keeping his flagship restaurant. And I, I think some of those chefs, you know, and, and Mr. Ricker, too, uh, in those empires, you know, that were part of my generation, um, they would say that the holes, you know, we're already in the business. I mean, the, some of these things that were foreshadowed or kind of hit the wall pretty hard with the pandemic. When you talk about real estate, you talk about a fixed minimum wage that we know people didn't always receive, you know, in, in the most positive way, they felt that, that it was mandated. I mean, I think there a lot of the issues that were in food service with the labor, with the rent, with the cost of food, the operationals, the liabilities, they were all riddled into it. I think this pandemic kind of like brought them right up to the surface. And now, from an operational standpoint, how do we look at those things? And I think to your the point you just made too, what what do we do with that labor? Can we now produce or can an operator produce that $1.7 million a year they need to do in gross with now maybe 30% less employees than they used to do it with? I mean, this is part of what they're faced with on the labor side of it. I mean, efficiencies, inventory, shrunken menus. And even to your point on the real estate, will chefs start to cohabitate? In kitchens i'm gonna run the ghost kitchen for lunch you run the ghost kitchen ghost, ghost kitchen for dinner i mean what, what what kind of creative things will come out of a shared space
1: you know well we saw that with pop-ups you know that started a few years ago and and that was foreshadowing um what was to come and you see spaces like dame that have handled that really well they have you know one chef there a couple of days a week and another one couple of days and they're establishing themselves. But um, yeah, the real estate situation is going to be crazy because uh, just take, uh, you know, not necessarily the hotel restaurants because someone can go in there when hotels open up again, when and if, Um, but some of those really, you know, established restaurants that have closed, who's going to do better in those, in those spaces and pay good rent than the restaurant that was already there, that already had a following, so. And, and that's the exterior infrastructure that I
3: think we might have, we as an industry, and I'll say this very carefully, that maybe we took for granted in terms of the entertainment, the theater, the sports, the downtown activities. I mean, PDX alone, the airport, the amount of traffic that was coming through there and strictly for you know food and drink and the gastronomic destination, of Portland, Oregon, that we all worked very hard in the last 25, 30 years to build that up. I mean, what what makes it and keeps that appeal going? And then again, to your point, when you've lost that precious infrastructure downtown that causes the going out and the dining and the anniversaries and the weddings and the birthday, all that stuff, how do we rebuild that? Because that is that 70% of what feeds the, the business, is this infrastructure that we, uh, we need to reconsider, especially uh, downtown. I thought today it was announced uh, Naomi Pomeroy is doing her new concept uh, that she launched uh, called Ripe Cooperative, which she does kind of sophisticated meals that are packaged and they come with tutorial videos to educate people about the final preparations. And they come, you know, you can do a meat one or you can do a vegetarian one. But I thought that was, you know, that was a sign of kind of combining these retail packs with farm goods, with to-go, and that leaves the restaurant to sit there and then eventually she can open it up again. And maybe this is just another arm that grows itself outside of the business. Um, so we're seeing, when we talk about collaboration uh, and chefs getting together, and we talk about Naomi, who has a wonderful reputation, kind of stepping out of the box a little bit and trying something completely different, driven by the pandemic. You know, I think that's, that's impressive. Uh, the other thing, did you ever see one of the, the Pixomatic vending machines? Where Cheryl from Pix.
1: Oh, yeah. Uh, puts I've, the line I've, right... <laughs> I've enjoyed something from there as well. So. Have you? Did, you? did you enjoy it? Uh, yeah, I can't say I didn't enjoy it, but I, we had a couple of technical glitches with, with, the, with the Pixomatic Excel itself, but you expect that it worked eventually. Um, yeah, it was fine, but I haven't seen it catch on. I mean, they're the only ones doing it that I know of. I know we'd have to we'd have to go to Asia to see that in full motion, right? We'd have to go to Japan or something. We'd oh it. yeah, or Amsterdam too. They have a lot of them as well.
3: Yeah, I mean, I've watched friends like my friends uh, Julie Richardson and Matt Kappler over at Baker and Spice and Hillsdale just kind of just shut the interior down. It's employees only, and everything is packaged and called in in advance, and it's a survivable model. I mean, I mean, she's not going to tell you that it hasn't been without great pain. They've made the adaptations, but I think. Um, that is, you know, that's also like all of a sudden we don't need the real estate. How many restaurants have you walked into and had, has seen the dining room actually became a storeroom? I mean, the saran wrap, the aluminum foil, the, all yeah. the cups, all the to-go containers are just in the dining room. So that has an impact in terms of when owners are looking at real estate going what do I do with this and how do I make money out of it? And we, we know, it's certainly like in the, in the Latin corridor, we've heard of restaurants in the Willamette Valley that are doing higher volume now. They're like, I don't want to open my dining room again because I'm doing this with a third of the amount of employees. My revenue is up by 20%. I don't have all the dishes to wash. It's a much more efficient model. And so we're seeing some people lean uh, in that direction.
1: I wonder how it's going to do. We're seeing quite a few cooperatives Open open up, you know, a few Italian uh, cooperativa and uh, some others as well. So, um, you know, you and I discussed this the other day. I still, the food is the food, and it's great, and I'm really glad to enjoy it. However, for me, uh, what I enjoy most is the experience of sitting with people and breaking bread over a meal and. You know, the service is important because it's nice to be able to sit down and have someone take your order and then not have to deal with dishes. And as I said the other day, if I never have another meal out of a you you probably know the name of it better than I do. <laughs> that the box that opens that secures on the top and then doesn't secure, it just opens up and um if I never have a meal out of one of those again, I'll be happy. But I, I'd like to see new packaging. For instance, Don Salomone, who has, uh, who was doing his um, uh, Stevens Italiano for a while, and I'm sure others do this too. But I've only had so many experiences with with takeout in Portland. But um, his his whole meal was served in these the great containers that secured and they stacked really nicely in a bag. And when you got back, you can, you could heat your item in that container and then later use that container afterwards. To me, that was a big step in the right direction because I just, and, you know, you, if you get, I like to order enough so that it's more than one night that I'm getting out of it. And then you're storing in this, not very secure, tight box, in the refrigerator afterwards, there's so much that is unappealing to me. I'm not like everybody, but man, I just miss being able to go in and sit down with someone and have a meal And that to me. The social aspect is 80, 90% of it. Sure, the food's good, but I'd rather, way rather have that food sitting down with you and breaking bread. That was a long so dissertation angry? there. <laughs>
3: are you telling me that Are you telling me come April when you go sit down in a restaurant and you have your seat and you made your reservation and they bring your food in a box, you're going to be disappointed?
1: (laughs) Well, yeah, I don't I don't (laughs) know what to think anymore. I'm uncomfortable with with the whole with everything on how to do it. I mean, I I know how to deal with this now, go pick up, take up food. But the few times where I was able to go into a restaurant, it's all still uncomfortable, um, and I, you know, in a larger scale, I'm really tired of making COVID decisions on whether to go here and do this, or did this affect me, and can I get together this weekend with my girlfriend because of, oops, what did I just do? I talked to talked to someone for a, a few minutes, so. Well, yeah, I, I, uh,
3: it'll be interesting, you know, when, operators start looking at the cost factors of like, well, no, seriously about the China glass and the silver, we know that's part of the experience. You and I both crave that, it's part of our lives. But at the same time, I wonder if some operators, it, it's going to cause a little bit of a, a twist in the, if you will, the, the lock key, you know, on the safe, they're gonna say, wait a minute, these percentages and this cost that I put into these things that break, you know, I don't know. I th- I think that the savvy operators are going to have a very different view of where they begin to crunch uh, the numbers. And I'm just joking about the whole you sit down, make a reservation and they serve your food in a brown box. I know that that's not going to be OK, but I, I bring it up as a point where I think that, uh, you know, operators are going to look at things a little bit differently, especially the labor. And you, know, you and I were talking the other day and I was and I was kind of going through my head thinking about, wait a minute, we We as a culture now have gotten used to spending $25 for a pizza. Maybe more than that.
1: I'll be on the West Coast, my friend. On the East Coast. (laughs) You can still get you can still get a pizza for twelve dollars on the East Coast. Maybe fifteen.
3: For my first vacation to be to the East Coast. But you know, a sixteen dollar hamburger, a twenty dollar fish and chips with halibut, a fifteen dollar basket of fried chicken. I mean, in some ways we've been conditioned uh you know, to get these baseline items in the so called American cuisine category, and we'll we'll pay a premium for them And I think that that's a manifestation too. And I bring that up because you will see operators shrink their inventories down they'll see that you know when I started in kitchens the food cost percentage you know could be at 32 percent so that meant for every dollar I got for a plate of food I spent 32 cents to get it on there that's gone down to like 26 percent I think after this operators are going to operate on a 22 23 percent margin and the successful ones are already there but that means squeezing inventory down making the menu tighter and maybe even fixing the amount that you make every day, and then you go for broke. You wanna be out and done at the end of the day. We're not gonna hold $3,000 worth of produce in the walk-in, and that's gonna be an operational change.
1: Well, that's the food cart uh, model. You know, I'm out and, I'm out, and we just close, whether we tell you or not,
3: so. Well, that, that's why I brought that up as an example. Uh, you know, the food cart's kind of foreshadowing what it was we had to do uh, with, the, uh, with, the, with the industry, for sure. So I bring those up. And I know that you brought up the $25 loaf of bread. So I think it's going to lead you on on that one there.
1: Uh, We're going to discuss that. I did have a $25 loaf of bread this (laughs) weekend. And, uh, you know, you and I discussed that on a more practical level rather than kind of it's kind of a humorous thing. And that's where we are. But that, you know, that is maybe where we need to be. I've heard operators say for years that you know, we really need to be charging $26 for that hamburger, but we can't, and we have to figure out a way around that. But that, but, but in order to get that burger on the plate, that's really what it costs, uh, or a local so, bread, so. So that, that
3: that to me is a big part of this equation. You know, In this discussion, and I think, and th- these are the things we really, I mean, what I need to do in my work is really help people get to that point. We know in this country that the cost of food has been pretty much squished down. We have this weird expectation that you know food is not that expensive in these levels of you know single fixed you know in, in smaller inventories, pizza, hamburger, fish and chips, this kind of stuff. I I don't know. Is, is this an opportunity for food service industry to say, hey, no, wait a minute, let's go back and look at the business equation again, and let me tell you, I can't work you know 65, 70 hours a week for a 2% margin. I need to be respected like anybody else in other businesses. And I do need that 10% margin that did exist in restaurants for a long time. And anybody you've talked to has watched it just kind of go down, 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 down. And not out of their, not out of their lack of professionalism, their lack of operational skill, or their lack of anything. The cost of, that's why I brought up the $25 loaf of bread, because I think it's, a, it's an interesting point. How do we conv- how do we as chefs, you know, convey to people that this is the cost of food if you want it in this quality caliber? I think that's that is the hardest
1: well the the communication uh challenge is one thing that you can just say it but whether people can swallow that and then afford it you know we're coming out of this pandemic where you know a lot of people don't have as much disposable income so are you going to create a further divide between the haves and the have nots uh, or the or the have not too much is um in dining so are the only people that are going to be able to afford fine dining uh people who make over $200,000 a year, then restaurants can't survive on that either. They have to be able to serve uh, a little little bit more of a mass audience, right? I mean, there's a balance there. So you can't just say, okay, well, this burger is going to be 25 bucks. That's what it costs. Well, you're not going to sell many burgers. Well,
3: I heard it was a record Cyber Monday today. So they say there's a lot of disposable income out there and people are buying trinkets and things like that on a kind of a crazy level. And that's, you know, that's a side point. But I, I do, I know, I, I, I say that in terms of like just knowing the industry and wanting the honest honesty, but I agree with you, it's very hard to communicate and convey that point about the true cost of, of doing business. And that's why I think I'm trying to thread all this together to say that I think, and I keep using that food analogy, and I mean that on a very broad basis in terms of shrinking the operational risks involved with running a restaurant. Because I said there's a there's a hundred holes in a restaurant, uh, is that can we bring that down, and maybe they have to work for it, you know? Maybe it isn't a twenty five dollar burger, maybe it's still a sixteen dollar burger, but other things have been taken away that make it operationally sound to have the margins that they deserve. And I don't, I mean, and I I know it's a, I'm a that may be a little bit too much somewhere over the rainbow <laughs> type discussion, but but well, I, I I want that for the operators.
1: Well, look at the way that taking away tipping no tipping worked in portland i mean it seems to work ironically it seems to work in europe but they're they're kind of adopting an american attitude and saying yeah no no you should be leaving a tip now five percent in europe but i mean it was tried by some of the some of our best restaurants in portland and they could not make it they could not make someone understand listen it's going to be about the same thing we're just packing it on on the front end but this model just helps us to survive and people didn't care And <laughs> they did, it didn't work so right. I just don't think it's that easy so it's everything is I've never seen an industry where things are so challenging other than like the music industry had to refigure everything out and now you know now you pay for it at concerts instead of <laughs> with records that's that's how they're making their money. So how do restaurants do that same thing well, and we're seeing a little bit of that with chefs doing zoom cooking classes and charging twenty five dollars for it There's a way to make revenue and not and and make one meal
3: <laughs> well that that kind of leads me to that when you i mean the chef's charging for you know the visual or the tutorial or whatever it might be. And you and I spoke about this a little bit, too, that we do, we've lost now three culinary schools uh, in Portland. You know, at one point, uh, seven or eight years ago, we had three, Le Cordon Bleu, the Art Institute, where I spent a little bit of time. And, of course, the Oregon Culinary Institute. Um, where does this labor come from? Because I'm thinking back to these meaningful conversations with operators that say we train all of our own people. We start them in the dish pit, we take them into the prep situation, and then within you know five or six years, they may or may not be the sous chef or whatever it might be. And so chefs took great pride in having their own domains with their own educational programs. And schools played into that, obviously. But how, do we, how, will, how will they perceive the labor now when they're not going to have the formal education, quote unquote, formal education, uh, to bring people into it? Who's going to fill these precious positions, even if there are less of them, I wonder? Because that's a big part of the, the the cost equation, and I'm not saying you can, you know, you obviously can't change it unless you salary everybody. But that's a whole different uh, uh, discussion. So I also think that that's something the industry will be trying to figure out. There's no great solid answer for that, but you know, what what is the labor market to support the food industry, and, and will it look different in two years or thereabouts?
1: Well, it's going to look different. I would, think, you know, it's not going to look the same as it did, and. You know, my understanding is that the labor market was a real challenge for operators anyway to find enough talent to cook. Um, So now maybe it's been answered by natural selection and that they're not going to they're just not going to have as many customers and they're not going to need to do as much. I don't know. But it was it was challenging as it as it was. And now um, now it's going to be even more up in the air. And it's really hard to plan. No one knows exactly what it looked like. It's not like, here's the handbook on your 2022 operation. Here's how it's going to work. Here's what you're going here are your goals, what you're going to have to get to. You don't know. It's all working as one goes. So,
3: well, I mean, speaking from the standpoint of kind of like the spoiled little chef brat, you know, who came up during the prime time of food industry and was able to kind of do it on my own and open my own restaurant and, you know, gain some of the media exposure that went along with it, all the great opportunities that went along with trying to make the restaurants viable and and develop the platform that had high visibility. I wonder if some of that visibility and even desirability of wanting to be the so-called celebrity chef or whatever it is might dissipate a little bit with this. You know, maybe the kind of the glory days of the of the chefs, and there are many, many, many names that go along with that, have kind of been dismantled a little bit, and, and maybe the reality of this industry, meaning that that's only a half a percent that ever makes it to that tier, the rest of us, you know, are just kind of uh, tinkering away in the long hours and the grease and the sweat and the dirty dishes and all that. So I wonder if the industry is going to lose a little bit of its kind of uh, what I, you know, you, I talked about on the last time we talked, the you know misconception of the industry is it going to get more real now? Like this is it? This is a trade, no glory, <laughs> no guts. I mean, I, I, that's the one thing I'm kind of curious about. If if the sh- if the shine has come off uh, of the culinary side of it a little bit in terms of the glory, not not the actual trade and the work and the craft that chefs will be doing for eons, right?
1: Right, but I guess there's le- a little less glory automatically when you have so few employees that you have to go in and do everything all of a sudden. So. Um,
3: you mean there's a little less glory when you just put food into a brown box
1: <laughs> yeah exactly <laughs> or when you have to be there at all times because that's the only way you can operate your restaurant is to be the, the one cooking when you may not have done it for the last five years and may have just been more of a manager so um, I mean I'm seeing that I'm seeing quite a bit of that I think yes um, I, I, I drove by Kalman guy today and saw I saw the
3: founder in there and they're working the cash register there she was you know that was that was impressive, that was impressive.
1: Yeah, I think she's she's often done that. I stopped in uh, two places for th- on Thanksgiving to pick up two parts of my Thanksgiving meal. And you know, there's Jose Chesa making a wonderful, by the way, Thanksgiving meal at, at Masia and then uh, over at Ordineta and they're, they're doing it. But those guys have always been in the kitchen anyway. It's not as though they haven't been cooking, but but they're handing you something in a kit now. And that's what I found kind of interesting is how nicely the kit is put together and the narrative that goes with the kit and this little stickers that make it look good. Thought is starting to go into those kind of things. You can't just hand someone a brown box. It's gotta look good. There's gotta be a nice package to it. It reflects on the restaurant. So resources are being put into the presentation for takeout, which I've never seen before. And then you and I discussed it the other day. You asked um, if I'd be willing to pay a little more for a nice package uh, as opposed to a brown box. And I said, absolutely. If I'm picking up something for $30 and someone says, would you like the premium packaging? I'll take, I'll pay another couple of bucks for that. So that it's not, fall. I mean, I had a beautiful burrata salad fall in the back of my car right onto you know stuff that was in the back of my car because of these boxes. So I'm, I'm glad that you brought that back up because I,
3: I do feel, and I do talk to our customers about that, I do think that that is here to stay in terms of uh, even if it is $2 more. I mean, you call it premium packaging or call it thermodynamic or tested by NASA astronauts or whatever <laughs> type packaging that's, you know, it's going to insulate, it's going to hold the heat going to keep the fries crispy uh it's going to have a little bit of an aesthetic kind of touch and feel to it when you open it i think that that's i think that's here to stay but that comes with a price and i think it needs to be added it has to be added on it's mandated if you want it but you know you're a connoisseur in that regard and i would be too i just i would say yeah two bucks easily because of wanting to keep the quality if you're already in it for 30 bucks what's two more to ensure that when you get it wherever you're taking it that it's still intact right
1: well, the little yeah. Thai restaurant here in Manzanita has been charging us a $2 takeout fee for, a, our for a while. For and then they hand you the thing and there's the tip line on there as well. So I've always thought, well, okay, all right. I have to figure this out at some point. Now, now we're all looking, you know, it's a pretty easy equation to say, okay, this 20% tip or whatever you want to leave, even more is fair given the pandemic. However, those of us who are consumers, aren't doing better than we were before. So it's harder. I I just factor in the fact that I'm not eating out as much. So I (laughs) can't, a a tip for someone to give me a bagel.
3: Is there any opportunity for the food service industry to have a couple little uh, invoice bylines on the receipts now where it says, to go packaging you know labor you know just kind of add a few things in there just to get it to pass through so people i mean that's part of like people understanding because i think i think the average consumer doesn't really know you know the details so what if a restaurant came out and did that i mean you noticed it right they added two dollars and you you took note. that's a start but I, I don't know how we get people to realize you know the, the whole the, all the add-ons that are going into the, the back of the house to do this.
1: Right. But that was before all this started. That was that was when we were back in 2018. Oh, oh I've never seen that before. A little to-go order package. Okay, great. Um, but at any rate, that's why I mentioned it. And um, my cheapness oh, always shows up on this podcast, I think. Your cheapness. A <laughs> tipper.
3: You're a t- I know you're a tipper. I know you're a tipper. Oh, I t-
1: Fairly well, But I, I've always been, I, I have the Larry David syndrome. I don't know if you watch, I think, <laughs> but, you know, at the, you know, at the coffee shop or anywhere, when there's a tip jar, there's a scene with Larry David where the guy makes his coffee and he's handing it to him and he's got the, he's got the couple of bills that are going into the tip jar and he wants to make sure the guy's watching because otherwise <laughs> what's the point if you're not going to get credit for being a decent tipper so right. are you watching i'm putting it in and then okay. so, <laughs> you just buy, you're just
3: you just buying yourself a ticket for excellent service the next time
1: <laughs> exactly right? that's that's what you're going to get out or of you it you just want to get credit for being a, a you know for being okay with it all so
0: Hey, Chris, let's pause just a moment here in the podcast to talk about one of our favorite places to eat, Ringside Steakhouse,
1: where right now, of course, they had set up a wonderful outdoor dining situation, and now we can't dine indoors or outdoors, but what you can do uh, is enjoy takeout from Ringside, so if you're in the mood for a hearty steak or even prime rib, they have three course steak dinners to go five nights a week, starting at only $38 per person. And, uh, you know, for ringside steaks, that's fantastic. So go to their website and see what that's all about. You can uh, uh, order to go, uh, and you can find them on DoorDash and Caviar or directly there. Call for pickup uh, starting at 3.30 and pick it up until 7.30. Start um, at 503-223-1513. That's 503-223-1513 at Rinside for a great pickup uh, opportunity for to eat wonderfully tonight or tomorrow night or the next night, starting on Wednesday. They're open Wednesday through Sunday.
0: That's right. The, the, those are the five days a week. And we should also point out that uh, you know you're talking about the things you can get on a regular day. They also have some really great holiday meal kits. So whether it be for Thanksgiving or Christmas or Hanukkah down the road, why not let, ringside steakhouse be part of your holiday celebrations just in your own house instead of theirs
1: that's that's great the well we'll hope the service can be anywhere near as good as it is at ringside at home but i don't think so but that's okay it's only they started only 38 dollars that's good yep also one other thing you can do is uh of course great holiday gift idea uh ringside gift cards those you can buy and those serve a few purposes they're a great idea to give someone um, who will not be able to wait to go out to dinner after this is all said and done, right. and also help support Ringside, who, um, you know, they've been going this, through this for eight months. It can't have been easy, and uh, it uh, it's something you can do to support restaurants. Do that anywhere, but um, thank you again for Ringside for supporting this podcast for years now.
0: Appreciate At- it. Absolutely. So if you want to find out all about the uh, to-go food, uh, head on over to com. Well, the that,
3: that other tier that I mentioned uh, when we started our conversation uh, today was the, the people that have opened during this time period. I don't know if you've been over to uh, Las Punales on Belmont, which David and Brian opened up this. Uh, they're doing the, the tacos where the meat is all braised, actually um inside of it and they've done a great job and that's just built for to go type traffic you know and they've they've had a great uh, start off run a, a little bit of a dip you know when the fires came and the smoke came and all that too but it's interesting there's uh, we've uh, worked with the whiskey barrel lounge out on uh, happy valley a guy named russell langstadt who was in portland for a long time went down to california came back to open that up with a woman named amy shannon uh, who's the proprietor. I've been working with a guy out in um, Bombay Pizza and Curry, which is kind of interesting because, you know, in my restaurant, I had a tandoori oven. I'm a huge tandoori oven non-bread fan. Yeah, he actually makes a non-bread pizza. I've been waiting like decades for someone to make a non-bread pizza. And it's called Bombay Pizza and Curry out behind Nike. It's a guy named Sonny Pamar. Uh, and they've, you know they've, they've had their moments. He calls me every once in a while and says, what's going on? How come nobody's coming into this place? But it's a pizza model. Uh, met a a really kind of interesting chef over in Sun River who's opening a new pizza place called The Fold uh, with two women up from California on the front end of it, you know, and I thought, here's a guy just – the pizza makes so much sense, you know. So that's that, that's just part of that downsizing uh, part of it. And Is you that and like New York
1: pizza that's folded, that's delivered to you already folded?
3: Is that? No, I think they're using that word in the artisan sense of handcrafted. Oh, makes so okay. sense. Yeah, because I saw their oven. I don't. He not talking about folding. Although you know what, I should investigate that for you because guess where he's from? The same state you're from. Um, so maybe, maybe there is something going on there.
1: You see, well, you you wouldn't you probably don't know offhand whether he's from the New Haven area because that's where people that's are where? particular about their pizza there.
3: I think you and I may need to go over to Central Oregon and check that out. He just oh, he opens actually uh next week, I think. Uh yeah, he worked uh he worked out of San Francisco, he worked out of Utah, he worked at a Three-star Michelin in San Francisco, so he's a he's a he's an artisan in what he does. And as you know, you and I spoke the other day because down in your neighborhood, there the Arch Cape Deli uh, is going to build out from scratch over there in Arch Cape. A guy that I actually was a high school uh, mate back in the days when I went to Lincoln High School is going to build out. Uh, a deli there but that was another one of those conversations where we've helped a little I've worked with him on the design and getting the kind of mechanical and engineering aspects correct for that build out is they added more seats outside and this place isn't even built yet but they're anticipating that we are going to be in this outside dining thing for quite some time so he put in another you know 25 30 seats so that's a design response you know to covid in a place that it hasn't even driven its first nail on the ground yet.
1: Well, you're going to sure. obviously see that because restaurants that are already open have been adapting with more outdoor, outdoor seating. Whether they can do it for more than a few months or not, they're still working on that. And I would think Arch Cape is the perfect place for outdoor dining. I mean, look what Moe's has done in Tolavana. And uh, have you ever been to um, the schooner in Nitarts? They have the no. perfect outdoor situation over there. So, um, and it wasn't there a few years ago. They kind of anticipated this, but, um,
3: but that's, no, I'm that's looking not- forward to
1: that Arch Cape spot.
3: I just wonder if the, that this is gonna play into even how restaurants are laid out if people taking consideration, creating the space you know, for flexibility ahead of time. So like banquettes are gone because nobody wants to fix themselves to set seating. You know, they want to keep the flexibility of it. Or even back to the point that, is it a ghost kitchen, you know, half the day? And then it's kind of a flexi- flexible dining room the other half of the day. I mean, it'll be because this does feed into the architects and the designers too. They will have these conversations now when they build out new restaurants. Like how do we respond to, you know, a potential pandemic or something of that nature? So we'll see it, I think, also in the design phase, which i that's why I brought up the Arch Cape Deli, because I know that they were already talking about creating that flexibility for for revenue, because all these, you know, topics and, you know, functions and things we want to talk about are all driven by revenue, you know, it's got it's got to
1: make sense. Right. Well, and I think as you're speaking, I'm thinking, will we see more either shared kitchens or kind of? Kitchen, like a duplex restaurant, right? And where the seating is shared, much like Prost, right? So you go in and you're using uh, their seating space for a bunch of food carts there. You can take it in and eat it. Um, I think you're gonna find, there, there will be some interesting um, variations because people are gonna have to be creative. We live in a creative city. You know, pop-ups, I, I don't know. I didn't follow the whole nation but there are a lot of pop-ups in Portland. And it was kind of, I think we were, the city was on the forefront of that whole pop-up movement. I could be a hundred percent wrong, but I didn't hear about them as much as I heard about them here. And that's a creative solution for someone who's trying to get started, right? Without having to go out and generate $500,000 to open their restaurant. Let me just try it a few nights a week, see how that works.
3: Well, we definitely heard stories where that was used as a funding mechanism. So it gave you know, investors, the flavor of what they'd be doing. And I think it got people excited. So they were, they were a good, you know, showcase, you know, for chefs and for operators to, to begin to, uh, you know, seed the money. Uh, but I, but I think that's the other thing, you know, the people that invest in restaurants, if you're going to go up over, a half million dollars or whatever, they're going to have different questions about their returns and the structure and the profit and loss statements and things like that about what it looks like, you know, post-COVID. So I, I'm just kind of making the point that this is like a chain-link fence, right? And there's so many different pieces that are all connected and everybody in every category, the architects, the designers, the financers, the operators, imagine what the county health going to be doing after this. <laughs> I mean, I think the county health has given a little bit of leeway for people to do retail conversions or whatever it might be. But I, I wonder what that's going to look like, you know, post-COVID too. So it's, it's, it's an. I mean, I want to put a, you know, a very positive spin on this, that uh, there are some opportunities here, but we can't really move forward with real positive, you know, kind of industry changing opportunities until we understand where the holes were and we begin to fill some of those uh, first before we move forward.
1: Are you glad? Have you given it any thought? Have you laid in bed at night and thought, "Man, I'm glad I still don't have wildwood in the middle of all." You know,
3: (laughs) (laughs) people people say that to me, and I, you know, I just cherish that time period so much. But I think the question to somebody, you know, maybe as crazy as I might be, is like, "Well, what would you do now?" And it really is advanced into using like the technology, you know, whether it's the vacuum packing, you know, doing sous vide, and that's a Multnomah County of Health or any County of Health issue in terms of like what temperatures you can actually preserve things in, and then using more sophisticated ovens. I honestly think, and I'm going to get like blown out of your show for saying this, that the days of like fry laters and flat tops uh, got to get behind us. They're just these mechanisms that use a ton of fat, use a ton of oil, they're inefficient, they're on all the time. I mean, what business is open for 12 hours and only makes money for four? I mean, <laughs> this is not a great equation for food, it's not all food industry. I mean, some food industry runs very efficient and is you know it's contracted and it's fixed and all that cafeterias and whatnot. But even those and buffet lines are pretty much you know part of the history pages now. But that's my point. Like, if I was to redo it, I would I, I would be the guy doing the $17 basket of fried chicken. That'd be me the guy who used to have the restaurant with the menu that changed every day that had a $50 check average. No, no, now right. I'm the $15 an hour guy. I got fried chicken. I make it one way. You don't like it. Get out. Right. You know, I just, I don't know. In some ways that's what it kind of comes down to because that service is what the, what, you know, consumers have made very clear what they want in some regards when it comes to eating quickly, eating proficiently, ordering it on my phone, you know, all those things that play into convenience, right? That's the, that's the key word there. Convenience,
1: yeah, convenience I,
3: and consistency.
1: Well, I also think that it it takes some of the creativity out of it because when you've got a restaurant right that's got a whole staff and uh, you know people coming in every day and you have to give them something you feel like you need to give them something different to enjoy. That's not necessarily the case anymore. Now, as you said, it's what does this restaurant do well, and what do I want to keep ordering from? Well,
3: I think there? we. We've seen the science, you know, slowly but surely. I mean, I got to think back to who was the who was the first guy that was doing the science books. I think I have some here in my bookshelf, but you know, all the way up to like you know SeriousEats.com and so forth. That we've seen the science push, 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 push closer and closer. And I think this generation of chefs now understand some of the food science, and that does take some of the margins out of it, some of the creativity out of it, you know, and that's why I use the fried, you know, the fried chicken example, <laughs> you know, where you just, you know, you do the sous vide and then you dry it and then you like just use ovens now that do, that you bake without oil. I mean, you get crispy skin without even using a stitch of oil. I mean, a, a 35 pounds of fryer oil costs $39, who wants to change that, you know, twice a day? I mean, it's, mm-hmm. it's, it's, so I just think that, that, you know, given the health factors in our country too, that's going to play into it a little bit more. I think, you know, 37% of the people in America is there, you know, eat eat at the fast food restaurants almost every day. And so that's a big part of our
1: industry. Is that really is the number 37% every yeah. Day.
3: Yeah. I just read that as an actual fact in a, a new a book I'm reading called The Perilous Bounty. Uh, so that, that's big right that's big so they 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 have efficiencies. fast food has you know they've done pretty well during this time period because they had all that they had everything the intricate aspects of the mechanical aspect of it you know the execution aspect of it was already built in and somebody had just told me today on one of her calls that companies like mcdonald's are actually just like shutting the dining rooms because there's way they figured out how to bring the traffic through the drive-ins i mean burgerville Mm here in Oregon and Washington has done really well over this time, you know, and really relied on making efficiencies through drive through And I just, I bring that up because that's an important part of the food service industry. You know, the people that do that well and service that, that sector, you know, they've got some of the science figured out, they got the efficiencies figured out. And so I think the, the fine dining part of it needs to take lessons from some of those aspects uh, and filter it into this experience that you and I do not want to go away <laughs> yeah we we wanted to come back please
1: (laughs) well just i mean just some just uh some moderation you know to do something different we're all getting a little um cabin fever we're all experiencing a little cabin fever so it it's nice to go out so it's not the same thing to drive somewhere or however people get to where they're going pick it up and then i'm back at home again so uh it for me it's it's nice to get out. So yeah, we, haven't um, any, we, we haven't measured the impact yet, right? There's no way we can
3: measure the impact on us at this point. It'll be interesting in a year from now to look back and say, "Wow, that really did change me." <laughs> so,
1: well, I can tell you this: I think I'm spending. <laughs> I'm I'm spending a lot less of my the income that I don't have on dining out. Right? I'm just not doing it as much. So. Uh, yeah, you're somebody who's connected your community, though, and I, I think you
3: and I both do that because we really want to support this lovely community that we're part of. You know, it's really important.
1: Oh yeah, no, I'm so I'm as supportive as I can be, and I'm glad I have this podcast so that I can support a lot of places I can't frequent, so um, and give them an opportunity to um, to shout out a little bit about what they're doing. So. Um, But no, you just mentioned we haven't really taken stock. That much I can tell you because, you know, I'm not spending as much dining out as I used to. And that happened when I actually moved out of Portland to the coast uh, seven years ago. Um, And it made all the experiences that I did have in Portland even that much more special. I have to tell you, it was getting ridiculous how much I was eating out and how much weight I gained. Well, I did it so it was nice <laughs> it was nice to get a little healthier and then make each experience which you know I get to, I got to do quite often until last March um, you know a few times I could get into Portland a couple of times a week there's there's a, a number of visits to Baker and spice one of my favorite places that you mentioned oh, yeah, which by the it. way their whole wheat croissant which is something I would never think that I would If you told me that, I'd say, no, that's right. I'll just have the butter croissant. Their whole wheat croissant was one of the best things ever. And that's been, I believe, I I don't speak for them all around, but every time I've been there, they don't have that any longer. That that went away on their smaller menu, but they have their Katie bun, which is still great. And um not not very good for someone like me who's trying to avoid sugar but um well the
3: the items that went away were the ones that sold the least
1: so unfortunately that was probably an item that wasn't high on their that's because i didn't tell enough people because more people ate it they would have enjoyed it but Mm -hmm. my point was definitely able to get back to portland you know a couple of days a week for a few lunches and a few dinners and and I uh, haven't been able to do that as much, but I have, I have to say some of the experiences I have had, I've enjoyed, you know, bringing home uh, Thomas Boyce's lasagna a few weeks ago was one yeah, of the best things yeah. ever.
3: And, story,
1: yeah. and um, yeah, it's great. So, um, and, and the Thanksgiving the we just had was really great too. And I didn't have to cook. Well, that's the other thing when Jose Chesa says not much preparation, you've got to remember what that means to him and what that means to you. So uh, there were a few pots involved there, but you know what, there was something else that was kind of gratifying. I think you touched on it earlier is we did a certain, we we prepared a certain percentage of that meal. So he started it. He set it on his way with directions and then we did some searing and some heating up and combining. And it was, uh, it was kind of nice that, that's a little bit of a new model, right? Of Finishing the meal at home.
3: And the, the other thing to keep an eye on, which I'm sure you will, is that there's a lot of talent that's now been somewhat displaced out there. I mean, chefs and operators and line cooks. And, you know, I wonder how they'll transform. You know, some people will walk away from the industry. I mean, some people will linger and other opportunities will come up, but there's going to be an immense amount of talent available uh, on the street. And I'd be curious if people stay in, the portland area you know the oregon area or whether they move into bigger cities because I, I always thought about that there's been a little bit of an exodus uh, of culinary and uh, front of the house type talent that you know that has been displaced and what will happen to them you know
1: well it's, it's like a tidal wave that came in for a few years and now it's going to go out and who knows what's going to happen down the road it's probably going to come in back again at some point but um
3: well, maybe uh, maybe all those chefs will go out and be actresses and actors and things like that. Who knows, right? <laughs> yeah, or do, like,
1: you know, leather stores that did, did his TV <laughs> show, too. So I don't know if right. many people are going to be able to do that. But, um, you know, I, I think one of the interesting things that's happened to Portland this year is... I remember when, when people would leave Portland, I used to think, well, why would they do that? Who would ever right. want to do
2: that? Right
1: Now I don't ask that question. If someone wants to get out of <laughs> Portland, um, I'm understanding. I don't, you know, okay, where are they going? What are they, where, 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 what are they going to like better? That's my next question. And I don't mean that from a cynical standpoint. It's just, I'm curious. Oh, where are you going? <laughs> what did you discover? So um, I think, you know it's been a really interesting year because we've seen a lot of that and a lot of people who just want to get out i mean do you think the downtown will come back you think downtown will?
3: That'll, that's going to be you know a government issue you know a city hall issue i think in terms of we're going to need some visionaries and you know, we've had i mean the people that developed you know the pearl district way back when on the south water front and i think we're going to need those kind of visionaries to really you know, private money is going to have to fund it and drive it. There's going to have to be some de- devoted interest in the real estate itself and the reemergence of it. And it's going to need a lot of support. Um, You know, and, and you know, I've watched it even as a kid here and then coming back, it's transformed in many ways, but I think this is going to be one of its biggest transformations, you know, to come back uh, in, in its own way. I mean, will it still be the Copenhagen of the North of, of the United States? I don't know. I mean, that that's the question to me. It's like, what kind of unique, uh, flavor view economic infrastructure can we give it now to really stand out between our other west coast uh, cities that you know are doing the same thing, trying to figure out what does it look like you know after covid so i i 'm excited for that, but I think that 's going to be a long a long haul long haul. it 's a,
1: it's a real long haul, and we don 't have the corporate infrastructure that Seattle has, for instance we don 't have the sports infrastructure which I think uh, you know my impression is that it hasn't been given enough thought I, i think there should be major league baseball here for the size city that it is and not only because i like baseball but because of what it does is it presents portland as a major league city those words mean something and all that comes around to support it look at all the restaurants when the blazers play at the rose garden all the restaurants around there that do really well and uh you know i'm Friends with Ethan Stoll up in Seattle, and he's always said, "Well, we we've got so many, we've got a lot of expense accounts up in Seattle that don't exist in Portland to the same degree. I mean, there there are some, but not what you have in Seattle. The Amazon, the Amazon, well, and the Microsoft okay. dollars up there are huge."
3: Hopefully there's a, you know, when that starts, there's a panel that uses the chefs and the operators to give feedback of what it really meant to operate. You know, really look hard at the dollars and then think about the potential and ways to kind of resurrect it. But I hope they talk to the people that were downtown and operating to get a real view on maybe what didn't work, you know, and try any rebuilding we do. I hope it's done with perspective of, of where we've been, uh, what we've been through, especially in the last 10 months and like how we can take that forward. So hopefully, you know, there's, there's some diplomacy uh, there's support and there's uh, minds that work together to recreate a model that can get Portland back to to you know to to where it should be. I I don't want to use it where it was because I think Portland is an evolving town that has a great future. So I hope that the gastronomic aspect is a is a
1: huge part of it. Yeah. Well, it was, it was, and we hope that it. I I think obviously the opportunity exists for it still to be. Um, and you know, it's not like every city isn't going through the same challenges. So. And no but the,
3: the the suburbs are loving it right now uh, <laughs> the restaurants that are out in the outlying areas uh their demographics are good uh they're doing well so they're they're holding a little bit of the power stick right now uh, mm-hmm. in terms of what what the draw is for restaurants to be uh, beyond the urban you know the direct urban area
1: I agree you know as someone who lived outside the inner core of portland and um, you know in portland and far southwest um I always thought that no one pays attention to me. They don't care. And then when traffic got really bad, it got even worse. So um, it was tougher. So I'm glad that some operators have paid a little more attention to, you know, Beaverton and Lake Oswego. You know, the folks in Lake Oswego, for the most part, don't really know there's a food scene in Portland. Some Very few That's do. Cool.
3: Careful, you don't want to lose that zip code to your show. (laughs) No,
1: I'm just saying. No, my experience is when I talk to uh, a lot of people who are there, and you can mention, uh, for instance, you can mention Paley's Place, and many. I'm not saying all, but many people in Lake Oswego who have disposable income have never heard had never heard of a place like Paley's Place or the places that I would mention. And I do all the time. So I, my data is pretty, I think it's pretty uh, strong. So those I keep- hope
3: that, uh, I hope Kurt Huffman's group still ventures forward and like Oswego, I mean, they were, they were laying some groundwork to, to do some restaurants out there. And I hope that that can, you know, find a, you know, trailer that hits itself t- too. And, and, and cause I think that was a very viable and very intelligent move on the group's uh, part,
1: you know. Oh, so- it's, a, it's a great move. And if you take a look at uh, bamboo sushi out there and salt straw, mm-hmm. The same mm-hmm. lines in Straw has the same lines in Lake Oswego that they have everywhere else. So, anybody taking a look at that would take the cue and say, "Okay, there is opportunity," and especially for someone who may not want to be downtown Portland until they figure out some of yeah. the problems that are there. A safer
3: bet, um, definitely a safer bet. The suburbs, and and I just. Uh, you know we hope to i mean we're already i've already been talking with the department of sustainability and how to get you know food uh, you know operators at the table you know with the department of sustainability and looking at the business structure so we want to be you know and i do that with my work at cisco uh being being at the table and helping to kind of scribe and look at the, what the options might be so We'll see but you're right, you know the suburbs <laughs> that's that's a fun i'm a i i live in southeast portland i mean i have I've been in the city uh both in my childhood here in early years and then coming back, so part of it, but I love the state you know I love the state, so it's great
1: how do you feel about southeast portland uh in two thousand
3: twenty you know from a food and beverage standpoint
1: no, from a resident standpoint
3: uh It feels good to me. I mean, I mean, and I have to honestly say I've felt just very uh, comfortable here, even in my isolation. I'm I can see Mount Tabor out my window. You know, I just I don't know. I love this town so much. You could probably put me anywhere and I would I'd be happy, you know. But I, I, I think Southeast Portland, I just again, it's hard to drive down the vision and think of all the restaurants that have just struggled with it. I mean, getting back to where I started our conversation, I just feel a lot of pain. For the operators, but as far as like the infrastructure, you know, maybe the population that comes in over time, we'll see. There's old guys like me up here. I mean, next thing I know, I'll be in a wheelchair going down 60th Avenue.
2: I don't know. <laughs> no, no. I, I,
1: that's not that next thing. That's, that that's the
3: next thing. Okay, there are lots of next that. things before
1: you get there. But
3: um, we, we won't talk about that. <laughs> yeah, but,
1: but I, I guess I was just asking is it I've heard from a lot of people how frustrating it is to drive downtown and see what's going on there. And even before the pandemic, just the homelessness and the crime that was going on down there. Do you feel that in South? Do you have any of those frustrations in Southeast Portland, um, oh, you know, versus yeah. like five years ago, let's say? Uh,
3: I don't know. It was it was three nights ago that Hawthorne got kind of rampaged, and uh, you know you can see the impact down at the local new seasons with all the you know the wood over the window frames and so on. I, it's it, it, you feel it. Yeah, you feel somewhat invaded. You know, I don't know. I, I just. I feel in some ways Portland has been somewhat protected to a great extent in some ways, you know, I've, you know, living in Boston and San Francisco and Chicago myself during my early journey years, I I've seen, you know, just the muck and the, the smells and the dirt and the suburbs. So I guess I'm a little more used to like thinking, yeah, if we're going to get big and we're going to grow and the population is going to grow, these things are going to come along with it. It's just the, it's kind of the manifest of the urban landscape in the United States, you know? And so I'm a little more, I don't want to use the word jaded, although I could, but I think I've just seen bigger cities and moved to bigger cities. And I felt that Portland was starting to begin to kind of uh, fringe in that direction.
1: So I think it's happening in a lot of places too. So. Yeah. It's not just yeah. you, but it feels. I think you used a good verb there. It does feel <laughs> like uh, being invaded a little bit. There's, it's a little yeah. invasive.
2: So now that I.
3: Now that I've seen the full picture and I've seen your lifestyle down there on the coast and expressed to you how much I love being just up the coast from you when I get a chance to stay at my wife's family's house, hey, I get it. I take the Pacific I, Ocean. Sh- <laughs> I don't tell anybody. Yeah, don't
1: tell anybody.
3: <laughs> what, what ocean was that? I forgot the name of it. I can't remember
1: no it 's it 's quieter there 's no doubt about it, but as i uh, you know those my friends who've been around for a long time, and even my kids uh, you know it 's been a long road i 'm in my sixties so i think i I raised two kids myself i I think I deserve a little more of a calmer lifestyle um, and i and i 've learned to appreciate it put it that way that doesn 't mean that i don 't enjoy my time in portland when i 'm there or bigger cities i mean I travel to I do get to travel to Europe and go to bigger cities there, and after a while, it's a little claustrophobic for me. If I'm if I'm over there for three weeks and big cities, I'm ready to I'm ready to not be around a lot of people. So,
3: well, I was glad I got to take a little peek in it, so I have a little bit of coastal envy.
1: So, <laughs> well, you have a you get to visit out here, so you're lucky, and I yeah. think most people need i always feel like you need to budget a certain amount of time at the coast every year if you live in portland you know, I have people, I've heard people say I haven't been out in five years. And like, really? <laughs> it's, a, it's a whole hour and a half, you know, and to put that in perspective, you could watch, you know, an episode of, one episode of television, and it's the amount of time above, over that that it would take to make us, you know, to warm some soup on the stove. So it's the hour and a half to get to the coast is not a big deal. If you're going to the North Coast, of course. Hey,
3: but oh, even, oh, oh. <laughs> I'll take that over the hour and a half of the therapist, right there. I'll just sit by the ocean and take care of everything, right there.
1: Well, yeah. <laughs> or then you could do what I did when I first, I first started. Uh, I contacted a therapist a few years ago, and I said, "Would you entertain coming out here and doing our sessions on the beach?" Yeah. So I thought that would be kind of fun. <laughs> but I never, I haven't, I haven't accomplished that yet, but we'll see. We're working on there's, it. Well, I
3: just say there's. I'll, I'll finish with there's there's hope. There's a lot of hope. I think yeah, to, there's so. hope
1: and there's all sorts of opportunities. And I have to say, one of them um, to to just I guess make this a little bit full circle. If you had told me ten years ago that I would be you know living on the coast and friends with you and have the opportunity to chit chat with you and hang out, and I hope we get to go to Ben together. We'll have yeah. to. Run- A Hummer or something, so we can be six feet apart. (laughs) But um, or some I don't know, or or someone sit way in the back. Um, I'm just joking, but I have to say I'm I'm humbled at the opportunity to spend time with you alone or on the podcast here, and I'm I'm even more humbled and flattered that you listen. It's always good to hear because we don't have a ton of data on who's listening to the podcast, but if I know people like you are listening, it makes me uh, it, it makes it all worthwhile. So,
3: yeah, my, well, my plug is I started off is I, I think this is this is in industry uh, critical, you know, just to get a sense, especially for people coming in the industry. Like, how do these people think? How do they get there? How do they view it? You know, I think that their stories are very important because uh, there's similarities in how this stuff is connected. So it, it's great. As I said last time, appreciate the uh, just the audio, you know, to have the voices out there and uh, we can listen.
1: You well I, I as i said I, I don't know very much i was you know I'm, i was a solid guy at the abbey the abbey restaurant in norwalk connecticut that's my only restaurant job ever when nixon resigned just to give you a little bit of a uh <laughs> a perspective on that so i don't really know that much uh, so i rely on our guests to bring the expertise and i do my best to not make a fool of myself while in the process. And I always hope to get through these so that, um, as I said earlier, it's sometimes hard to listen, but um, I do my best to just let you, you shine. And I think, you know, it's easy for you to shine. You've shined in many, in many different ways in your lifetime and your career.
3: Well, I'm going to find out if that guy over in Sun River, Sean Smith is his name, is from somewhere you know in Connecticut, and I'm going to get to the bottom of this folded pizza thing, and if it requires a trip over there, then you and I will make it. Uh, I'll drive the truck. You can sit in the back. And uh,
1: <laughs> I'll, I'll sit anywhere. Let me bring my dogs, and we'll go, <laughs> okay. we'll, let's, we'll go and visit John and uh, Renee. Yes, too. That'll, be, right. that'll be a fun trip um right. but i'll tell you what even a more fun trip would be go to connecticut and do the pizza thing there yeah so, yes, have you ever done that have you been to yes yes i've been Pepe. To Pepe. yes yeah. so that that's cool and um you know i always but i'll tell you what the portland food pizza scene grew so much that i stopped missing it so much in uh in connecticut so that's a compliment
3: that's a huge compliment too. yeah no woman. i think it's
1: done it's done really well and you can get a lot yeah i can even get great pizza here did you ever go to marzano's when you're out here in No, that'll, that'll be on my list
3: my next trip i better make it very soon
1: yeah it's good and if they started doing takeout but they had labor problems they started doing takeout closed their dining room about three years ago so it's only takeout now that roasted that sausage and roasted onion pizza in the car that's one of the best sensations you can have. <laughs> as, so, long as, as long as
3: as as long a year from now, you don't tell me that the car experience was the best part of it. I think that we'll be okay.
1: <laughs> no, it's to close the windows and smell my roasted onion, man. It's really good. So we'll do that together sometime. All right. Maybe. Give me hope. All right. Thanks so much. I appreciate All it, right. Corey. Thank you, Chris. We'll talk again. All right. Bye, everybody. All right.
2: Right at the Fork is hosted and produced by Chris Angeles and Court Johnson. Connect with us on Twitter and Instagram at Food Podcast PDX or on Facebook at Right at the Fork or online at Right at the Fork com.